Last year, I had the honor of attending TEDxLA and listening to one of the most incredible speeches I'd ever heard. One of the speakers blew my mind. Her name was Anusha Ansari. She was strong and calm, but most importantly, she was an astronaut. Like millions of other kids, she had drawn pictures of spaceships. But for her, drawing that picture of a spaceship as a kid was much more than just a drawing. It was a dream, and nothing could stop her. It was a long journey of 30-something years. But wherever her life took her, she never gave up on her dream. 2006, she made it and blasted off for an 11-day space exhibition and captured headlines around the world as the first female private space explorer, first astronaut of Iranian descent, the first Muslim woman, and the fourth private explorer to visit space. Today, we will dream big. Welcome, Anusha. Thank you. So I'm very happy that I, you took this time. I know you're a very busy person. I've been trying to get a hold of you for quite some time. So we finally made it and you got to leave in about 37 minutes or something. So we're going to have some fun and share your story because I think it's really inspirational. So can we just start your life in Iran where you grew up and your dream to become an astronaut and your fascination for the space? Can you just walk us through that? Sure. Um, so I was born in Iran and raised in Iran. And as a young kid, what I loved the most was to go at nights and look at the starry skies. Uh, back then, uh, the night skies were very clear. The pollution wasn't as bad. So I could see lots of shiny points up there. And uh, I was fascinated about what's out there. Uh, as a child, I imagined other worlds. I imagined perhaps there are aliens out there. Maybe some of those aliens can come and take me with them even. Um, and uh, I was just curious about what's out there. And that curiosity led me to want to learn more about it. So it got me interested in math and science as I grew up. And uh, it uh, made me want to explore it myself and become an astronaut and be able to go to space and, and study astronomy and all sorts of things. So it was sort of a driving force in my life that has shaped my life as I live it today. Yeah. I love that. And also, I also love that you, you wanted this for so long, you never forgot about your dream. I know myself as a martial artist, I've been doing karate since I was six, and it took me 20 years to become a world medalist, way after the motivation dies, right? So what kept that force inside of you? You became an engineer, you started your company, can you just talk a little bit about that? Um, of course. Um I believe that, you know, when you have a dream and you really feel passionate about it, um, you need to sort of allow yourself to experiment with it in your mind, in your imagination, because imagination is a very powerful gift we have as human beings. And as long as we try to um, you know, keep that dream alive, whether it's by uh, reading some books, uh, um, you know, perhaps looking at some pictures, uh, writing an article about it, and just, you know, continuing uh, that learning process inside of us uh, to connect with the subject of our passion, then we won't forget about it. A lot of times it's easier, especially if you have a big dream, if you have something that's difficult to accomplish, you know, it's easier to give up on it, especially, you know, as, a, as children, we're more resilient and we try harder. And as we become 
older and we become adults, there's so many other things in our lives that sort of I call noise and distractions that it sort of distracts you from your passion and your goal and what you're driving. You get just, um, you know, focused on the day-to-day life activities, your work, your eating, sleeping, just living your normal life. But to me, as human beings, we have so much more potential. And a life worth living is a life that we've explored to our fullest possibilities. And those dreams and our imagination is what allows us to elevate ourselves above just an ordinary life and live a life worth living. Yeah, I I really love what you're saying, and it's all true. But why do you think you never gave up on your dream? Because how many years it took thirty something years for you, right, to accomplish this dream? Why do you think you never forgot about it, like many people do? Um, two things. One, if you ask my family, they will tell you I'm stubborn. <laughs> uh, so once I make up my mind on something, um, you know, I I don't forget it. If it's important to me, I won't forget it. Um, it doesn't mean that every day I'm, you know, sort of just focusing on that. But it's something that I keep my mind on it and I talk about it. As I said, I will study it. I will make sure that I have something, even if it's small activity, that reminds me every day. Because once the opportunity comes, if I'm not focused on it, if my mind is not tuned to that frequency, I won't see the opportunity. So it's important for me to make sure that I have that frequency open in my mind so I can see the opportunities coming. So that little little engagement in daily life, it's important for me. So, so I try to stay engaged because ultimately it's important for me to achieve that dream. Um, and, and the other thing is that I'm a... Um, positive person. I'm a hopeful person. And uh, even though, uh, you know, I a lot of people told me that I will never become an astronaut, uh, odds were against me. Um, I never lost hope completely. I never told myself that it's impossible. I always told myself that it is possible and it will happen. So that positive feedback to yourself, allowing yourself to believe, I think is the one of the most important step in achieving anything. Because if you're deep down inside have doubt about it, then you know, it will make it that much more difficult to achieve anything big. So believing in yourself, allowing yourself to believe in it. And, and then giving yourself space um, with little things that you do daily to continue that uh, passion every day. So once the opportunity comes, you're ready for it. You can see it and you can actually do something about it. Yeah. So those small things, the, the daily tasks or so to speak, what, what was that for you? Uh, for me, it was v- very simple. I mean, nothing almost. So uh, throughout my um, you know career as an entrepreneur, as an engineer, always my screensavers were pictures of space, constellations, pictures from Hubble uh, telescope, which I love. Um, I would read articles. I would listen to podcasts about space and cosmology. I would register for courses online to learn about space. Um, 
astronomy and cosmology. Um, I love sci-fi movies, sci-fi books. So just little things, a reminder that just to keep that passion, that interest alive. And then the other thing that I did, I always talked about it. I always told everyone whether, you know, not as a child, even as an adult, every time I was interviewed as a successful CEO of a tech company, they would ask me, what do you want to do? I would say, I want to go to space. I would buy a one-way trip to space and people will take, I'm crazy. But the reason I got introduced to Peter Diamandis and, and Peter came to talk to me about the X Prize, which started my whole journey in space, um, was because of one of those interviews where I told you know the reporter that I want to go to space, I want to take a suborbital flight. And then Peter read that interview somewhere and made it his mission to contact me and talk to me. And perhaps if we never met, you know, XPRIZE would have never been launched. And, uh, you know, the whole space industry that we see today would never be what it is today. And I would never have gone to the International Space Station. So there are little things, you know, little steps that sometimes when you add them together, those dots start connecting and then it takes you to where you want to go. Yeah, it's funny when you look back, it's much easier to see. But when when you're there in this moment, you still have to do it, right? Yeah. Uh, did you have any haters along the way? I wouldn't say haters. Uh, you know, I, I don't look at people that way, to be honest with you. But uh, I'm sure a lot of people uh, didn't believe me, uh, perhaps thought I'm crazy. Uh, even when we sponsored the Ansari X Prize, a lot of people thought we were crazy. I got letters and emails. Why are you doing this? You're going to get people killed. You're going to, uh, you know, get people to do dangerous things. And my point to them uh, was that, you know, this is not something I'm making anyone do anything. It's a prize and only people who feel passionate about it will do it. There are lots of people who take risk every day. There are people who are passionate about climbing Mount Everest. They take, you know, they risk their lives to experience that. There are people who love race car driving and they get killed. Nobody, you know, blames anyone for that because it's a personal choice. And, you know, this type of experience, uh, this type of experiments is a personal choice. And I'm just saying it's important. It's important for humanity for us to open up the space frontiers for everyone. And uh, I believe in that. I'm putting my money where my mouth is. And, and if there are others who want to join me on that journey, then it's their choice. Uh, so I had always a lot of people who, um, you know, didn't believe me or uh, doubted what we were doing uh, with the Ansari X Prize. But uh, I never cared uh, and uh, I, I never let other people's opinion uh, decide what I'm going to do. That's great. I, I don't think you should ever define your own life but others' opinions, right? And, Absolutely. But it takes courage. Can you just talk us through how did it feel after all those years and you're waiting to, to, to go up on, to space and be an astronaut? How, how did that feel that just before you went up? Um, it felt surreal. I remember the moment very, very clearly. I was sitting uh, inside the capsule, strapped in my seat, you know, very tight space. And uh, I, uh, we were just going through all the checklist of things to make sure everything is okay. And uh, the checklist was completed. We still had some time. And they were just started playing some classical music in our uh, headset. And uh, we're just 
told to just relax until the time comes for the countdown. And as I was sitting there, you know, I was first thinking that, am I dreaming this whole thing? Am I really strapped into a seat on top of, you know, a lot of explosives <laughs> and I'm going to go to space? And, and, and it was uh, an incredible feeling. And then I, the, the most, um, st- the strongest feeling I felt was uh, this feeling of gratitude because I started thinking like a flashback through my life of how everything had to come together for a young girl from a city in Iran, from Mashhad, to be able to be sitting on top of a Russian rocket to go to space to fulfill a dream after 40 years. So it was... uh, it was surreal for me, but I felt gratitude. I was extremely happy. And I remember I sort of, in my mind, I was thanking everyone who had helped me get there. And then I was just praying to God that, you know, I just please let me experience weightlessness. Let me experience space. So if anything is supposed to go wrong, at least let me experience it. Then after that, I'll die a happy person. Um, so that, those were the thoughts going through my mind. And how, uh, how did it feel to, to be up there? It, it was the, uh, I mean, the feeling is indescribable. It's um, difficult to put the words, but it's, uh, it is truly life-changing. It uh, makes you uh, feel small because of, you know, how you ex- start experiencing the universe and, you know, you sort of feel small, you shrink compared to uh, the entire universe surrounding you. And uh, at the same time, you feel um, big and empowered because, um, you know, you look back at our planet and uh, you see things shrinking and the problems and all those noises and things that consume you every day disappear all of a sudden. And you're like, you can see clearly the important things. You sort of, everything comes to focus for you. The important things come to focus for you to see what's important in life. And you look at our planet and you remember all the wars and the craziness that goes on on a daily basis on our planet. But from up there, you see this beautiful, peaceful place that's home to all of us. And, and there are no borders, there's no dividing lines. And uh, you just, I was praying and I was wishing that, what if everyone could see this? How could this make the world different? And uh, that's the wish that I still carry to make yeah. sure everyone can see that. That is amazing. So what could you say to people listening to this podcast and have a similar dream like you? What, what, what can they do? Um, I think whatever your dream is, first of all, um, make sure that you're fully committed to it. Uh, and what that means is, as you mentioned, uh, you have to sometimes make sacrifices. I've made a lot of sacrifices for my personal time, for my family time. Um, you know, I've put a lot of burden on my family and friends and my husband. Um, so uh, it requires sacrifice. Nothing big, nothing important can be accomplished without sacrifices. So make sure that it is important enough for you that you're willing to sacrifice something and to work hard for it. Um, never listen to people who tell you you can do something. And deep inside, make sure you believe in yourself. I think that's the most important thing. The moment you stop believing in 
yourself and that you can do it, you might as well quit and not even try because you're not going into it with your whole heart. So you have to uh, make sure that you show up, as you said, 100% and show up every day and day after day. And then when you fail, you get up again and you show up again, you fail again and you show up again. <laughs> so it's an iterative process. And uh, you have to make sure that in, that goal, that dream you have is important enough for you to give you the energy for you to show up every day, failure after failure, and, and uh, that uh, you will, you know, you have that strength inside that will allow you to do that. Another thing I would say, we are all human beings and there will be times that we just get tired. It's like, I'm tired of falling down and I don't want to get up this time. So those are the times where you need to make sure you have a person, a friend, a family member, uh, maybe a pet, I don't know, whatever. One thing that you can look back at or call or talk to and that thing will remind you why you wanted to do this, why it's important for you to do this. And it will give you the strength when you don't have any more strength left in you. So it's important to have that sort of secret stash that you can go to or that friend that you can go to that will uh, give you that energy when you're just at the end of your width. Today's guest is a boxer from Panama who now fights out of Freddie Roach Wildcard Boxing Club in Los Angeles, California. He started training boxing in Panama at age six, and now 19 years later, he's still boxing and sees bright on his future as an athlete. He has over 100 fights as an amateur and almost 20 as a pro, and even though he's ferocious in the ring, he is also well known for his funny dancing and fitness videos on social media with his girlfriend Gemma Marin and their daughter Alexandra. His name is Israel Bumaye Dufus. Welcome, Israel. Hey, very cool. Thank you. Thank you so much for the for the invitation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for <clears throat> for the opportunity to share my all my experience, uh, ups and downs. You know. Uh, all my dreams, so. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you here today. We, obviously we know each other from yeah. before and we'll talk about that as well. Uh, but let's start with, with Israel. Who, who are you really as a person? Well, my name is Israel Dufus. I, I, I come from the, from, from the neighborhood in Panama, I call it San Miguelito and, and River Down. Um, I started boxing pretty early because that was the only way to to survive <laughs> in the in the hood. Because all we do, the first thing we the first thing we do is fight. Is fight, you know. So one day I was fighting. I was fighting, and one of the guys around told my mom, "Hey, why you don't bring your son to the to the gym, right?" And then from there is when that passion for boxing started. Yeah. So. Do you remember your first time in the boxing club? My first time in the boxing club, yeah, actually, yeah. They was doing, there was a bunch of guys that was doing uh, shadow boxing. I didn't know how to do that, but I was just trying to follow the group, you know? And they immediately, right away, uh, make me do a sparring. Like, fight with another guy with, the most, with, with more experience than me, you know? And I was like, okay. This is fine, so let's go fight. 
the guy, he beat me so bad. Oh my God, I was crying. I remember I was crying. And I go so I, I, I go back to my place so mad. I go back to my house so mad. And then, but that was the intention of my, the intention of my mom, because my mom, she did that to try to, 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 to make me don't fight no more, you know? So when, when I go back to my, to my house, I was so mad it that create create the opposite reaction. Yeah. So I was like, no, I have to go back there and beat the guy at least one time. And then I was doing and the second time I've been in the gym, they beat me twice. And I was so mad. And then finally one day I beat the guy. And then from there it was like, no, this is what I got I, I want to do for the rest of my life. The shirt, the claps, the energy, the adrenaline that day was so 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 big to me you know so i was like no this is what i want to do and then from there is when i become boxing besides that i did a lot of sport i, I i've been into i i always be a very athlete guy yeah. i did soccer a uh, triathlon marathon every kind of sport you name it and then and, and and i've been and, and i've been there so it's kind of interesting because you're six years old in this boxing gym. You you fought another kid that's fought more, and most kids would just give up and and cry. You know, like you, your mom thought, and he's gonna calm down. But mm. you you wanted to fight more, and I think that that is a trait that defines a champion in some way. Why do you think you had that as a six year old? Because that's a, that, uh, as I say, this is that that was the only way to survive. If you don't show, if, if you don't, if you don't show the guys how uh, respect how to respect you they're going to beat you for the rest of your life if you don't want to be the weakest guy yeah. you know yeah. you you build that you have to build that 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 protection very early yeah. it knows only me the rest of the guy yeah. so when you grow up in this kind of place when you when you grow in this kind of place you everybody is the same way you're trying to to create that that protection to build that that protection to protect yourself wow so you got all these contracts and you found found one you decided to come to LA or what happened no uh i i got this contract I, the the first time i came to usa was for a training camp too also the first time when i came to to usa was for training camp with Sergio Maravilla Martinez. He, he was a champion at that time. He was one of the best middleweight, one of the best middleweight at that time. He's an Argentinian guy. Then I did that, and then I go back to Panama, and then come, when then all these things with the movie start. When I uh, when I went back to Panama, I start work uh, start work as a modeling, <laughs> model and other kind of stuff, um, TV commercial, and then the movie come, and then I did the movie, and then in the, from the movie I made uh, uh, my my ex manager, I made my ex manager, and then we 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 gonna talk about that right yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. So I, I I made my my ex manager and she promised me the, the war. She promised me so many things, so many things. Oh my god. How how old were you at that point? Ah uh, I was twenty already. I, I was twenty already. 20. So 
how how does it feel for us? Because I know in the fighting world, you know, music, all of those things when there's talent, there's so many people making money in this business, right? Yeah. So it's hard when you're that young to make the right decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Because you see this contract and you hear all of this, but you're just happy to have a contract, right? Mm-hmm. At that point. It's just like uh, when they sign a famous singer, exactly. at that point you will sign almost anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you realize, oh, wow, what happened? Exactly. So you, was, you were promised and you came here to train with yeah, Freddie Roach? To train, to work, as everything. Because yeah. how I made her in the movie, I thought it was for the same reason I came here, to work, to fight, because I was not fighting at that time. Yeah. I, I was just training. I wasn't fighting at that time. I was just training. And then I was more a little bit focused in the, in, in the movie industry, in the modeling industry, because I was working in a model agency company. In, in Panama? In Panama. Yeah. A pretty big model agency uh, com- uh, company. Then when I met her, is when I decided, okay, well, I can get my career, my, my, my boxing career back. Yeah. And she promised me that. And she promised me I can be in USA modeling and, 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 and acting yeah. and fighting, yeah. right? At that time, I didn't, I didn't, I don't have, I, I didn't have the visa work. <laughs> I don't have that. You know, that's almost impossible to work in USA. Yeah. You can sell orange and apples in the street without visa yeah. <laughs> work. But you can go and say, I want to do a movie with Sylvester Stallone yeah. without his, you, that's, that's, that's impossible. That's not going to work like that. Yeah. And then that was the, the, the fierce thing, yeah. the fierce war I found out when I came here, I didn't have the visa work. So I spent almost one year without work, yeah. just living at her place and having fun. I was training, yeah. But no fighting. But no fighting. Yeah. I was completely okay because I don't have to spend any kind of money. I don't have to spend any money. She was paying for everything. I don't have to spend money in the rent and the food and nothing, but I can work. And I was blind for that. Yeah. And I was blind. I was like, okay, if I haven't home, if I am having fun, so I have, why I have to complain about it? I have nothing to complain about it. But at some point, I just stopped. The club just stopped. It's like, wait a minute. I supposed to be came here to work. I supposed to be here, come here to do acting and movies and modeling and boxing. And I'm not doing anything all, all, all of those things that she say. And at some point, at some point, she's gone. At some point, this is over. And what, what about me? Go back to Panama? with my hands empty, just like that. And then I start do questions. I start make questions. Hey, why is not this? Hey, why not this? this? And then she start get like, she start feel depression, you know? She start feel depression. And then I start show her own self. And then I just realized that there was full of lies, too many lies. And and I start take care of myself, decide for myself. Yeah. If she don't like that, yeah. if once I start take care of myself, 
and decide for myself, have my own decisions, take my own decisions. And then she said, okay, we don't work no more. If you want to do whatever you want to do, okay, do it. But you got to go, you, you have to go out of the country. She start with all this kind of stuff. Because immigration, they don't play, and this and this, and then she start like, uh, like uh, trying to scare me with the with the government. I was like, hey, I have everything right here. I, I never, I, I didn't done anything wrong. I just train. I'm living here, waiting for you. Tell me what I have to do. Where is the war? Where is the job? What is with? So you didn't have any fights at that point. I was fighting. Look, look. I was fighting. I did like a, in two years. I did like a three fight, something like that. Like in two years, I did like a three fight. Yeah. In those three fight, was illegal. It was a right fight in the big shows. I don't want to name the the the, the company. It was in the big show, but under the table, you know. I was getting a paycheck for charity, like a charity. Yeah. I was not getting the right money, yeah. you know? So I was just the entertainment. Yeah. So, so how, how did that feel? Because I remember when I, when I met you, at, at one point you didn't even have a home, right? Mm -hmm. So what, what happened? How, how, because I think there's a lot of people coming with dreams in exactly. sport and then all of a sudden you're standing there, you're, you were 23 at that point? Yeah. yeah, 23, and you don't have a home, and you're so far away from your family. How, how, how did you react I to was, that? I was without nothing, like nothing, like zero. Zero, zero, like when I say zero, zero, that, that point that you, you see, I was sleeping at the, at the gym, at the floor. Uh, thanks God, I have at, at least a floor to sleep, at least a, a place to sleep. Uh, but I didn't never expect that I would be in a position yeah. when I went in my country, the place that you can sleep in the beach. Yeah. <laughs> you can have a, a desert beach only for you. Yeah. You know, to be now, to be... You came here to become a champion, right? Yeah, and become, and to be a, a champion, to be a, a star, to be an actor, to be all these things that she say. Yeah. Because... When you are in the, when when you grow up, this is another thing. When you grow up in those kind of place, Hollywood is far away. It's so far for you. It's so far. This is just a dream. So much uh, so much of the people from the from the ghetto, they die, they die dreaming with Disneyland. Yeah. When I came here, I have the opportunity to just decide whenever I want to go to Disneyland. Yeah. yeah. When I the first time I went in Disneyland, my mind was, I was dreaming. I was like, I can't believe I'm in Disneyland by myself. Yeah. Grown man already, as me, and then in the Disneyland like a child. So yeah. happy, so happy. Yeah, that's so great. So happy over there. Right now, I'm sitting right across a giant. Sean Stevenson is the tree fruit giant that has inspired millions of people around the world through his YouTube videos, books, and speeches. His TED talk, The Prison of Your Mind, might have been the most authentic speech I've ever heard. When Sean was born, the doctors told his parents that he would be dead within the first 24 hours of his life. 
38 years later, he's still going strong and ridding the world of insecurities. I'm so excited to have a deep, raw, and honest conversation with this man. So let's get started. Welcome, Sean Stevenson. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me on the program. I'm so grateful. This was uh, you're in town and you took took the opportunity to come here, and I am truly grateful. I had a hard time sleeping this night because I'm so excited. You've really been an inspiration. So I just want to ask you, Sean, who are you really as a person? I'm someone who's trying to figure out my own mind. I'm trying to figure out how to navigate emotion. I'm somebody who's trying to navigate my own challenges and my own dreams. And because I'm learning who I am, along the way I'm, I'm learning a lot about the human experience. And then I share my findings with people such as yourself on amazing programs like this and with audiences like I did this morning before I got here and through the videos that I do through my social media. All I like to do, or all I believe I'm really doing, is sharing my findings of the navigating that I'm doing within my own self. And a lot of people think I'm confident every single day and that I'm always positive and always happy, and that's not true. I navigate challenges and moments where I question myself, and at the end of the day, I'm really wanting to know how to live life without being eaten alive by insecurity. You know, one of my mentors asked me once, Sean, why were you born? And my thought process took me to the realization that I'm really here to rid the world of insecurity, to help people live life not shackled down to that fear that they're not enough, that that insufficient energy of like, man, I'm not tall enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not smart enough. And the truth is you are enough. You don't need anything outside of you. You don't need a certain amount of money or a certain appearance. There's nothing you need to go get to feel like you're worthy of love and validation and approval and, and to have a good life. Yeah, that's beautiful. And we're going we're gonna to use this hour to dig deep in this because I think uh, a person like you, it seems like you've uh, been thinking a lot in your life and you have developed a lot as a human being, which I love. I have an interesting question to you. How do you think your life would have looked if personal growth didn't exist and personal development? I don't even want to think about it, but I will. Uh, I know I would have become a very possibly bitter person. Um, you know, I was a positive kid. Don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, before I knew what personal growth was, I had really incredible uh, mentors as a child. Like, my parents were very amazing people, and they told me that I could, you know, that you need to believe in yourself and not to let the world bring you down. So I definitely had a positive attitude. So it's not to say I would have been completely stopped in my tracks without personal growth, but I would have played small. I would have, I would have lived out a life that maybe matched more of my container. I probably would have just, and there's nothing wrong with the life I would have chosen. I probably would have become something like a graphic designer and worked on a computer and just, you know, did it, made enough money to survive and you know, looked forward to the movies on the weekends. 
compared to the life that I have now, where I have two homes, I get to travel the world, I have an incredibly smart, beautiful wife, I have a huge network of friends, and I get to be on amazing uh, programs such as this, sharing my message. There's no way I would have played large the way I did because of personal growth. So it kind of gave you courage? Absolutely. Just also it gave me the, the vision to think bigger and to not let rejection and upset stop me. Because you know this to be true. When you want to succeed, just that desire isn't enough. You actually have to roll your sleeves up and get to work at it every single day and face rejection every single day. People saying, you know, there's so many podcasts out there. Like, why is yours any different? Or there's a lot of speakers out there. Why should we hire you? And, and it's easy to, to get beat down by the sheer number of people and the number of people that tell you no. And so for me, it, it helped me to push forward and to know that rejection and dealing with doubters and haters outside me, uh, that's a part of the experience. You can't succeed without going through those steps. So it certainly gave me the, probably more of the persistence to keep going on the days that I wanted to quit. I love that. And for me, I, I'm from Sweden. So coming here is being in a new country, talking in a different language, trying to spread your message. I think I have come across a lot of, uh, in my mind, hard times because I don't think I'm enough sometimes to succeed here. Yeah. Uh, and what advice would you give someone like me that re I really want to give as much as I can and inspire, but sometimes I can feel that too. Like, it's too many people. Why should they listen to me? And sure. what type of advice could you give someone like me? Well, the, the best piece of advice that comes to mind right away is you need to be very careful who you're associating to and who you consider your friends. And I would rather have three really positive friends that believe in me, that encourage me, that pick me up when I fall down, than a hundred people that are just kind of there for me. A hundred people that are somewhat believing in me, but sometimes talking behind my back. So you need to have an empowering environment. You need to be surrounding yourself with people that see something in you on days that you don't see it yourself. Because when life gets you down and you feel upset and you want to quit, when you fall and you're surrounded by amazing people, They'll tell you, no, 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 you cannot think this way. There's, you're better than that. There's more here than you are giving yourself credit for. Get back up and that are that, are that loving, encouraging force on the days that you want to quit. So I would say, first of all, make sure you have an incredible group of peers. And secondarily, I would say you need to have incredible mentors. Yeah. You need people that have already achieved that which you want to, to do and have. So people that have the accomplishments that you're looking forward to having, that are willing to take you under their wing, that are willing to tell you, look, you're a wonderful guy, you have a great message, but you need to change this about your marketing, or you need to, you need to know this about your audience, you need to be talking about this specific thing in your books, in your podcast, whatever it may be. They're willing to give you the tough love. So you need incredible friends, you need incredible mentors, That, that would be the first two things. And the, the last thing is you need to have a, a set of rituals, what I call my when life works list. 
I travel with it. It's a graph, and on my graph, I have going down on one side all the activities that I do that make my life work. Things like hydrating during the day, getting enough liquid, uh, making sure I'm exercising, making sure I'm eating right, uh, making sure I'm meditating and praying, uh, that I'm reading good materials, that I'm that I'm working on connecting to my my wife and our marriage, that I'm reaching out to my friends, and all these things are on the list. And then uh, as the list goes over on the other axis, I look at all the days of the month. And then each day I mark off what I'm doing on my list. And what's amazing about this self-care list is the more things you check off doing in your day on your self-care rituals, the better your mood will be. So when you're feeling beat down, the best thing you could do is go to your self-care rituals because you're in control of that. You're not in control of how many people like you. You're not in control of what the economy is going to do. You're not in control of the weather, other people's interpretation of you. You're not in control of practically everything. The only two things you're in control of is how you interpret what's happening and then what are you doing about it. And so when you're having a tough day, what can you do about it? Well, I can go back to my self-care rituals, take care of myself. Because what I've learned is that the, the cure to insecurity is self-care. The better care we take, it's amazing. The more things on your list that you check off in a day, the better you're going to feel. And when you feel good, you start taking bigger risks and you start pushing to get back up. But people always... They get into the trap of thinking that their mood is just some kind of magical force that shows up, that there's nothing they can do about it. But your attitude and your mood is very much based on what you're doing with your day-to-day rituals. You're so right. I'm, I'm actually working on a book now uh, with morning routines because uh, it's based on the people I meet on my podcast and what successful people do in the morning. Because mm-hmm. what I have noticed, those routines change people's lives, sure. right? Yeah. Uh, so could you share, what do you do in the morning? What's your morning routines? So it varies depending on if I'm back in home, at my home or if I'm on the road. Uh, but for the most part, it's journaling three pages a day when I wake up. What do you write, write about? Uh, well, it's pretty much just dumping whatever's in my mind. So it may be a story that came out of a dream that I just had, or maybe it's rewriting my goals, or maybe it's writing down some of my frustrations. Am I upset about something? Getting it out on paper. You know, the mind, it's like a cup. You need to dump it out. You need to empty it to let something new into it. So I try to dump whatever's in my mind out into three pages a day. I got this concept from an incredible book by Julia Cameron called The Artist's Way. And it talks about what she calls morning pages, writing these three pages a day. No matter what it is, just sit down, write three pages a day. Because I believe that most people that, if they just wrote three pages a day, they wouldn't need their antidepressants. You know, some people need medication, but most of us, we just need to connect with ourselves. We need to be writing out what we're thinking. And, And you know, it's amazing, I journal three pages a day and then at the end of last year, what I did is I read the last five years of my journals. Wow. And I learned a lot about myself. I found trends. I found that there are certain things that I had made huge progress on, and there's other things that I am no further along five years later that I need to make sure I focus on. 
And it's amazing to be able to study yourself. That's how we started this interview. I said, I'm a student of myself. I'm trying to figure out and navigate my own emotions, my own dreams, my own fears, and then share my findings with the world. I love that. And that's what I, why I'm doing this. I want to learn from others and implement it in my own life and create a good life and also share my findings because knowledge, if we don't share it, it's waste. It's empty. Yeah. It's empty. So never believe a prediction that doesn't empower you. Mm, you said that. <laughs> I love that. Can you just explain? Sure. Well, you're given a lot of labels in your life. And people will tell you, you're not going to achieve this. You're not going to make it. You're not going to survive physically. You're going to be told a lot of things throughout the course of your life. And I found that if you want to succeed, you want to survive even, you can only believe the predictions that empower you. If they limit you, you can't put your focus on that. Somebody, I know when that talk came out, that TED Talk is what you're yeah. referring to, I, I remember reading the comments and somebody said, oh, well, he's, he's putting out bad advice because what if you really are given the prognosis of death and, and, and you have wishful thinking? Well, my mentality is if you're given the prognosis of death, you got that. You have the only chance of survival by blocking that out and going after something else. So maybe they are right. And maybe you only get to live six months, right? Do you want to live like that the six months or the last months of your life and how awful or how horrible? Or do you want to go after it saying, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to keep living and pushing to focus on what can I do and see how long I do get to be here and, and believing a prediction within yourself that matters. You know, they say that when people are given the prognosis of death, when they have a reason to survive, when they have a vision that's pulling them into their future, they will live far longer than somebody that doesn't have that vision. You know, if, if you want to see your grandchildren walk down the aisle at their weddings, if you want to see the company, you know, get to $10 million, if you want to, you know, have any vision pulling you into your future, you have a much better chance of survival and success. You cannot listen to the predictions that limit you because then you'll give all your energetic attention and then you'll feel small and then you'll start to be scared and then you'll feel like the world is closing in on you and you'll begin to quit and just pack it up and life will seem so dark. Yeah. I'm curious about your dad and what role he has played in your life because what I understood when you became a teenager, he quit his job to, to be around you. Can you just talk us through that and what affection he has given you in your life? Yeah, so my father has taught me a lot. Um, he was uh, a stay-at-home dad when I was in junior high on. We, uh, he taught me so much about uh, you need to be there and be strong for the people around you. You know, my dad has been a, a phenomenal man that has, has taught me about being honest and, you know, eat and doing the right thing, you know, having integrity and, and following through when you tell somebody you're gonna do something. And he, it's been a phenomenal experience, you know, until uh, just recently he would travel with me. Now he's 70 years old, he's a grandfather, and taking care of his grandkids with my mom. and uh, But man, we saw the world together. He traveled with me uh, working. He it took me to work at the White House. Uh, he went to college with me 
an incredible man, and I'm so blessed that he has been my father. Today's guest is the youngest Latina in the world, 200 marathons. She ran her first marathon at age 14, crossing the finish line hand in hand with her father. That was the start of a never-ending love story. Since then, she completed 137 marathons, 78 half marathons, 14 ultras, and 5 Ironmans around the world, frequently in the top. Her parents came to the United States from Ecuador a few months before she was born, and she has now become a beacon of hope for many immigrants to believe that they can also go for big goals. She says, I want to show them anything can be done, no matter what their background. Let's welcome the incredibly inspiring Nadia Ruiz to the I Love Success podcast. Hey, Nadia. Hi. Hi, welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, I'm glad that you're here and... Uh, I read a lot about you and to finally sit here uh, eye to eye, I think we're going to have uh, some fun. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So let's start with Nadia as a person. Who, who are you really as, as a person? Well, I come from an immigrant family. Uh, we're from very humble beginnings. And I think the number one thing that is very important to us as an immigrant family is, is family and unity and uh, since they, my parents did come here a few months before my birth, we were very poor. Uh, my dad had to juggle two, three jobs, learn English, and learn his trade. He's a union electrician now, but he had to learn the whole language all over again, get go through training all over again. Same thing with my mom. And so just seeing them basically leave everything behind, leave family, money, come with nothing, and start from nothing, and be so passionate and driven to try to provide and build a home that go after that American dream for their kids. I have, I'm the middle child. I have an older sister who's seven years older and a younger brother who's seven years younger. So they always instilled in us very young that hard work will work. And as long as you just keep at it every single day. So I saw that from just a young, young child over and over and over. So it became a very important kind of a theme in, in our family. That's beautiful. Families indeed important. And I think a lot of uh, families that come from another country, they keep those values because they have done this big journey as a family. How important do you think it is to have those people that can actually help you when, when you want to give up? I think that sense of community is really important. You need to have someone that you either you love or you respect or you admire or is willing to be your mentor or, is you, or just even if they're not giving so much to you, but they just inspire you. Like follow everything that they do and see, like find inspiration through them and, and reach out to them if you can, if that's possible so that they can guide you. Because my, my dad has been so crucial. My, my dad has been so crucial in the mental strengthening of myself that has allowed me to apply myself in all things that I do. To achieve things outside of running, achieve outside of sports, because of that mental strength that he has raised me and he taught me so early on. And I think it's, that's really, really important. So what do you do if you don't have that, someone like that? How, how, do, you, how do you go after your dreams then? You, there's so many resources out there, people out there who you can find inspiration with. Like I honestly pick up autobiography after autobiography, biography, biography. Like, I am a huge bookworm. I, ha I was when I was very little from the start. Like, you can find 
like inspiring stories. If that person can't be real, like right next to you in your life, you can create that person through the books that you read because books have been like my therapy as well. Like just reading biographies and, and inspirational self-help books, personal development books, uh, he, reading the stories of people who have made it, but seeing the struggles that they, how they went through and overcame that and finding, you know, bits and pieces of, of inspiration from that because that's where, because I mean, I'm not always going to my dad. I'm not always going to him and, and asking him, like, please motivate me, please. Like, no, because what, what does a parent do? They, they, they're supposed to serve and, 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 and parent you and guide you, but to the certain point where you have to learn to do it yourself. Yeah. You know, that's, that, that's where, and if you can't do it yourself, then you, you reach that resource. And for me, that has been books. Books have helped me a lot. It's incredible. I love reading. And that's what we're trying to do with this podcast as well, by sharing stories to give uh, mentors and masterclasses to people that are, they might be uh, somewhere in Ecuador, right? Or in Macedonia or Sweden or Japan, but they can listen and they can, you can get that fire, right? From someone else and then try to apply it in your own life, being resourceful, you know? And I, that's something that you gain when you don't have uh, money, right? You, you have mo the motivation to do something, but you don't have the money. Then you start thinking about all these resources. How can I do it? And you, you never, even though you had to take a side step to finish your education, you still had your goal back in your mind. And I, I love that. It, it reminds me of a story of a woman we have on, had on the podcast, an astronaut, Anusha Ansari. She dreamt about, she was drawing pictures of airspaces when she was a kid and it took her more than 30 years to achieve that and going into space, but she did it. And I love what you're saying. Yeah, I had that goal and I got to get back to it. You lost it somewhere on the way, which happens to a lot of us people. We have a goal and then we get caught up in other things that we have to do. But all of a sudden, wow, we need to get that fire back. And sometimes we don't have the money to do it. We don't have the resources, but we can do it anyway, right? Where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. There really, that, re that really does apply. I mean, there's now, especially with, with social media and the internet, you can find everything you need. You can get, give yourself a degree on, online by reading and reading and reading. It's just having that focus and that, that real, real, real sharp focus on what is your goal, what is your reason. Like that's, that's the biggest thing because we all can create goals at any given time of our life and a stage of our life, but those goals will, will never get achieved if you don't have a real internal fire, a real reason. Why am I going to work so hard to achieve this goal? Because there's going to be rough times in your, on your journey and your period of your life that's like, you know what, forget it. This is just not worth it. But who's, who do you have to go to to remind yourself here in your head to remind yourself like, no, this is, this is the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm working so hard for this goal. And it really means this much to me. And I know what it means much, this much to me. And I'm going to keep working at it. So like that's why you know goal seeking and goal achieving and goal setting it's a whole entire process. It's not just like you know it might, might sound cliche, but it's not just about the destination or about the race or about just getting a degree. But it's about the whole journey and the the process that it takes to get there. Embracing that process because that process is really what changes you. It really does teach you so much about yourself and about whatever it is that you're you're going after and trying to achieve. 
And, th- and that's how my journey started. Once I finished grad school, I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm got my own place and, and I want, and I bought my own bike and I'm like, okay, little by little. I, and then also another thing too, my dad always, always taught me to be very smart with my finances early, early on. And it's interesting, right? When I graduated high school, that my first summer before going into school, I got my first full-time job. I worked at this little pizza place and all I did on the weekends was read books. I picked up finance books. And I mean, my, like, in, it's unfortunate in high school. Yes, we take, you know, econ, but they don't teach you finances. They don't yeah. teach you like how to like really what is debt. Like, how, yeah. I mean, and you don't want to be getting into the wrong debt. So yeah, you know, it's crazy what we don't le- we don't learn that, and we don't learn goal setting. We don't learn confidence. We don't learn uh, self knowledge. We don't learn any of those things in school. And those are the traits that will actually make you feel good, right? And that was the thing I did when I was 17 and I got in the summer, I, I went to go pick up some finance books, like, you know, balancing your checkbook, balancing your finances, saving, like people just, a credit card, like debt, like all those things I just taught myself by reading intro books. It's literally just intro books. And like, I was just always at the library or always at Barnes and Noble. And, you know, and it was like this, it, like for me, I would remind myself of like that scene in the matrix, you know, when Neo, like he gets into this program, they keep putting all these like programs into him and he learns them in seconds. For me, knowledge is wealth. Like I just, I would love to have that program where you can just put knowledge and knowledge and knowledge and knowledge in my head. And then you formulate your own ideas. You create your own ideas. You create, it's just about seeing what's out there in the world and then creating your own. And that's what I loved about like books and reading because I would pick and choose like all this information because, you know, you can't always believe what you read. You can't always believe what you see. You can't because not everything is consistent. But when you learn to see patterns, that's that's the biggest key is patterns that will allow you to kind of put things together. I'm like, this is what will work for me. This is what might work for somebody else, you know, and, you know, it was those finance, those little life skills that I did early on. My dad told me. Always have six months of savings for you know a rainy day, some, some in case something happens. Okay, always put away a percentage of your paycheck. Okay, and it's and it's 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 almost now shocking to me that people don't do that. Like they just they don't they they live paycheck to paycheck or and it doesn't matter how much you're earning. You can be earning twenty thousand dollars a year or six figures. It's just a behavior. It's a behavior of how a concept of how we should save or how we should, you know, be mindful of living in the now, but also planning for the future at the same time. So what I did kind of set me up uh, right when I finished grad school, I got, I, I was in grad school and I had my first full, like full-time job. I worked for the UCLA School of Public Health. And then I went to go find another job because I saw my parents do that. When they started, they had two, three jobs. I'm like, well, then why can't I? Why can't I do that and be resourceful, you know? And I did. I went. I went to. I was an assistant, a personal assistant at Cobalt Banker in Beverly Hills. So I would go to school. I had my full time job at UCLA, and then at nights I would go be a personal assistant at at the this this firm. And I had basically was working eighty hours a week, 80, 90 hours a week. And fortunately, I didn't have to deal with traffic because everything was close. I lived right across the street from UCLA. You know, Cobalt Banker was right. You know, just a ten minute drive, so that eliminated them from the time of wasting during the day. But really optimizing my day, optimizing and visualizing. I want to save. I want to save money so that I have a future for myself and set myself up for myself. Not be rich, but just be okay. 
and and be able to then enjoy money when I finish school, when I start working and I'm a teaching because I'm setting myself up for that. In today's episode, I met with a former pro athlete and now a researcher, Dr. Benjamin Holtberg. We spoke about success, we spoke about performance, we spoke about relationships, we spoke about giving it all and purpose-based identity versus performance identity and what is really important to be happy and to be successful and to thrive and to perform. Kick back, relax, and enjoy this amazing episode. Welcome, Benjamin. Ah, thanks for having me, Peter. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you here today and talk about what you do and your research. But let's start with Benjamin as a person. Do you know why you think you were fascinated by sport? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, personally, I was fascinated by it. I think growing up in the Midwest where, where, where sports was so celebrated, um, I saw my dad who, who loved sports. And I just, I, you know, I, I, as you know, as an athlete and, and others know, there was something about it that, that when I ran, I, 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 I could just, I f- just felt pleasure and joy. And, 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 and I learned really quickly I was just faster than other people. And, and I, I love to get lost in that play. Um, and, and what's interesting professionally is when I retired, to be honest, Peter, I was like, I wanted to move out of sports and just work mainly with uh, my area of expertise of emotions, emotional health, and how emotions are shaped within high stressful environments, usually high risk environments. So I dove into that work, working with uh, lots of, of, of young people and their families and, and uh, studying um, physiology of, of the impact of their environments. Um, and what really brought me to sports, I think, is quite interesting, is what we found with our high-risk youth is, you know, when you're a kid who grows up and, and your, your life is, is, is being threatened because when you walk out your front door, you have to be aware, uh, physiologically, we become uh, um, really used to that. So we have to be chronically aware of our environment, and we perceive threat really quickly. So these kids that I worked with, were, they tend to be really reactive, right? So you take a kid like this where in their environment, it's important for them to, 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 to really be aware and often uh, fight to protect themselves. And you put them in school in a place where they're supposed to learn and somebody accidentally bumps into them, well, they'll perceive that as a threat to themselves, even if it was an accident often. And so what we found physiologically was a lot of these kids were heightened towards reactivity. And and we know this in in research and science. Uh, But what's fascinating to me, what became apparent too, is when, when athletes begin, when athletes put their worth and value as human beings and how they perform, so when we form our whole identity around performance and whatever it is, um, the, the, uh, the threat of an evaluation of our social self triggers the same physiological mechanisms as if we're being threatened physically in real, in, in real life. So we're perceiving a threat. It begins to trigger our physiological kind of sympathetic nervous system in a way that uh, doesn't allow us to perform at our best over time. It's not sustainable. It's so interesting. Everything you say is something that I can relate to so much because when I was young, I was a little bit overweight and I was a little bit picked on and bullied by Mm. that. And then I found a karate, which my father uh, was a coach and I started training that. 
and I kind of found my way because I was was good at something. Mm-hmm. But what I what I did wrong in the beginning, just like you were saying, my self worth was equal to my performance. Yeah. And I remember when I was 18 was the first time I became a junior champ in Sweden. And that was a great accomplishment for a overweight, bullied kid who almost didn't have any friends, was smallest kid. And the, the thing, the feeling that I had on the car way home mm. from being a, a national champion, yeah. I think is the worst feeling someone can have. Yeah. I only thought, how can I defend this? Yeah. And this is exactly, I think, what you're talking about. And I learned, I still have to remind myself that my performance is not yeah. who I am and it's not my self-worth. And I've learned that during the years. But I can so recognize that. And I know there's so many people that, that have, everything is equal to your performance yeah and can we just talk about it? what yeah why why is it like that yeah well it was interesting when I when I started to study this and 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 have come to uh, understand it as a performance-based identity and and studying hundreds and hundreds of, of high achievers and athletes is this this profile of an athlete emerged of this performance-based identity is that that worth and value gets so wrapped up in performance that it can what happens is there the, a fear of failure begins to come up is is as the thing about success is as the stakes get higher as you win more you have to keep winning right i mean what you 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 have you? to well I, the way when you have a performance based identity i think what happens is it, you you can reach success and you still realize i'm not enough You're or, never or enough, I, right? in how we define success yeah. i guess but w- you reach your goal and you wake up the next day and you say, I still feel unfulfilled. And, and this performance-based identity can drive you for a while. It's what gets you up in the morning, right? Like I had the poster on my wall, that, the Nike poster, I think it said something like, there's somebody out there training harder than you right now. And when you face them, they will win. <laughs> wow. that's, right, like that's, that's the athlete. You know, you wake up and you're yeah, like, okay, I gotta yeah. push. And there's nothing wrong the with that push for excellence, but what's driving it matters. And so, what I found in my work was this performance-based identity gets formed, really, in a lot of different ways. But one way that it gets formed is 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 we internalize the voices of the people around us. Is that that the influence of those around us begin to become a part of our sense of identity. Um, and that, um, we carry these voices uh, uh, through our lives. And so you, Peter, uh, coming to find this, the beauty of karate and how, how it helped form you and your, it gave you purpose and meaning was so special, but it doesn't take long before that, that gift becomes a burden, right? And you, you, you set out to say, oh yeah, you, I've been bullied, so I, you know, uh, I'm gonna prove to everybody I can do this. I'm gonna prove that I'm good enough. I'm gonna prove that, that I'm worthy, um, and that can get you to a point, but the problem with being based in fear and, and kind of negative emotion uh, to get you somewhere is it robs you of the joy of it, and then and then once you're there, you can't truly settle in it. Uh, um, I think that's so hard, especially living in a city like Los Angeles. So 
performance, like winning yeah. and being happy, it could be two very different things, right? right? Because if we look at some of the best athletes, they might be very, very successful in that given field, in that sport. But when it comes to happiness, sometimes you have to sacrifice a lot, like right. relationship. So can you just talk about that? Yeah. And what do you define as, as that performance and happiness idea? Because yeah. I met with one guy and he said, happiness is not important. He right. almost got angry. He's, yeah. I'm here to make an impact in this world. And I said, yeah, but isn't it important to be happy though? Right. He said, yeah, do you think Mother Teresa was happy all the time? And it's interesting idea, but I'm, I've thought so much about that. What does everything mean if yeah. you're not happy? Right. Yeah, I think, I think happiness is, uh, you know, positive emotions like happiness, it, it, it's really important. I think it's important for us to experience moments of happiness in our life of, um, of um, just, uh, you know, uh, experience the fullness of all that's around us in our lives. I, I do think we have to push beyond happiness a little bit. I think we have to think about things like joy um, that is not so dependent on circumstances necessarily. And so when we talk about happiness, I think the challenge there is um, when we often think of happiness as having more stuff, as, as, as doing, you know, being more successful. And I, I think we have to think about it as being more a part of who we are and our identity. And so for me, what, what, what I think is more important even than, than happiness is, is to have a, a meaningful life, a life that's full of meaning and, and, and you experience joy. And joy is not circumstantial, that we can find joy even in suffering and challenge and difficulty because it's a part of who we are and, and understanding who we are. And so... I, I think there's a there is a balance with when we think about happiness and performance. Is it, I can understand what the former guest was saying around happiness is it's not important, um, and that he's here to make an impact. I, I think there's there's a part of that within that that I, I get is that our personal happiness can't be the driver of of how we exist in this world. And instead, I think the driver of how we exist in this world becomes our unique purpose and meaning in this life that's, that's just ours and how we can contribute to this world in a way that's uniquely for us. That, 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 when I say for us, I mean that's that, that purpose is for us, but it's making a contribution to the other. I think life without, uh, without really um, making an impact on others and thinking of the others is devoid of, of meaning. And I think that becomes, and, and the, the great thing is as we dive into making a meaningful impact, it does bring joy, a, a sustainable joy. Yeah. And it does bring happiness too, which I think helps us perform. Um, I, I often get asked all the time when I speak and talk to people as they say, Ben, do you think that some of these high level athletes would have gotten where they were today if they were emotionally healthy people? And I say, you know, I don't know, but how many other kids, how many other athletes could have attained what they did if they were emotionally healthy people? One of the hardest things I deal with as a practitioner uh, and, and a therapist is, is seeing uh, young people that have so much potential and talent 
uh, that never are uh, uh, able to fulfill those dreams because they face incredible difficulty and adversity. And that still haunts me, some of the kids I worked with who, who, who uh, died young uh, or took their lives. Or, or the, the, that's the balance, right, is that the, it's not the performance, it's not the pursuit of excellence, it's what drives it that either can consume people and destroy them or it can come from a healthy place of meaning and purpose that allows them to reach their full potential in whatever activity it is and then long after. Today we're here for one reason and one reason only, and that is to help you crush your goals in 2020. To help me out, I brought in one of our most popular guests ever on the show. His name is Janik Ulander. He's an amazing entrepreneur and a fellow Scandinavian. So without further ado, let's get this show started. Hey, Yannick. Hi, Peter. I'm so happy to have you back, man. Uh, there's, you know, there's people that you like and there's people that you really like and there's people that you love. Yeah. And I don't know you that well, but I love you, man. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> uh, it. Because you send out this positive energy in the world and only you know what you have gone through to get there you know yeah. and i think the reason why so many people related to you in episode 44 i actually wanted to name that show the cow shit philosophy because oh, i remember you were working uh, it was your grandparents or like in the stables in denmark yeah yeah and that was but we, we named it the hustlers philosophy because you actually created something from nothing yeah that's uh, true a combination of wanting to do something cool, combination of pain, of dreams. And I said, I'm going to do a two episode special. Uh, so the last week's episode was with Bedros Koulian, a guy that I know you like as yeah, well. Him, yeah. uh, so I thought who would be better to, to, to combine and share knowledge. And that's you. Oh, that's yeah. good to hear. Thank you for having me back here. Yeah, it's, awesome. a, it's a pleasure. And you know, I, I love to share my story and if I can, help motivate other people, uh, you know, break through and go for their dreams. I love to do that. That's awesome. So can we just have a little bit like a recap? What has happened during the last two years in your business and in your personal life? Mm -hmm. So um, a lot has happened in my, in my, in my life, so to speak. Uh, so I, you just told me I, I couldn't remember exactly when I was here the last yeah. time, but it's two years already. Um, since then, <clears throat> you know, Nealaya is going really well, my jewelry company. Uh, we have really stabilized the company, kind of stabilized the growth, and finally got, got everything under control, so to speak. You know, when, you, when you're growing a lot, you, you, you grow left and right. And yeah. uh, now we really have like an overall plan. The company is going really well. We are breaking records online. Oh. So what we can see is obviously we have our flagship store in Melrose. Uh, but more and more sales are just going online. And our biggest customers are, are the biggest online stores like in the world, Salando, Farfetch, and so on. Um, I'm very motivated, actually. I'm very happy. Uh, still, uh, we just celebrated uh, a month ago, we celebrated our 10-year anniversary with Nealai. I can't believe it, but it's been 10 years since I started. And uh, that's a proud moment for me. Um, we won this year uh, the prize for best uh, jewelry designer, jewelry store in LA. Uh, as well, 2019, so that's also an accomplishment. And uh, all of that is going really well, actually. So uh, my business is going great, uh, motivated, I'm happy, I love what I do still. Normally, I'm a starter, I yeah. start a company and I sell it in, in two to three years, but this company, I think I'm gonna keep forever. Yeah. Uh, my private life, um, 
Things been really uh, amazing as well. A uh, little tur- turbulent as well. Uh, I was with uh, a girl for two years, a Brazilian girl. Uh, we lived together and had a great uh, relationship. But you know, there was some uh, things that wasn't perfect uh, yeah. as there was supposed to be, I guess, between us. So um, we decided to split up last year in uh, February, February March, I think, after two two years. So that was a very um, abrupt uh, breakup, so to speak, and unexpected. But uh, for the better and uh, mutual, like we call it, decision, and uh, I'm very happy with that. And then, so I kind of, you know, with her uh, and also me, you know, we were, we had a lot of plans. Uh, we were getting married, getting uh, having kids potentially, and all that kind of stuff. But it just kind of stopped from one day to another. And I really um, had an opportunity uh, to sit down and think about my life, and also, you know look around on my friends and what's happening in their relationships and stuff. And you can just, you can plan so much, but life almost very often doesn't go after your plans. You know, it's like, it's, it, it can be unexpected. So I just decided I'm, I, I'm going to stop planning so much. And I'm just going to live and do whatever I want to for a, a while while I'm still single. So I've been doing that for all of 2019. I've had a lot of fun and yeah. uh, worked hard as always, but really <laughs> just like had a lot of fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And do you agree with the saying, I think it was Bill Gates who said, most people un- overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in a decade. Because oh. now you have a decade of business experience with Nealaya. What's, mm-hmm. what's your opinion about that? Oh, for sure. I even say uh, most people overestimate what they can do in a day and underestimate what they can do in a week, you know, yeah. because everyone has like plans for what they're going to do. But then, you know, when they look back, they haven't done half of it. Yeah. Um, for me... You know, a very, very good example is uh, I, I write things down. So every every time you come to a new year, I sit down two days before, two days after, and I write down my goals for the following year. Yeah. And um, when I was when I first got here, the first year or something, I was, I was living with a Danish girlfriend I actually came with. We were living in Hollywood Hills, and I had plans for my new established um, uh, publishing company. And I remember I was sitting in the garden writing my plans down for, I did a one-year plan, a five-year plan, a seven-year plan. And uh, then I was going to look at it, like after one, we broke up a year later as well. But so I was going to look at this plan a year later, two years later, but I, I couldn't find uh, the plan where, and I, I couldn't find the papers. So, um, you know, things happened. I, I didn't, uh, I, I pursued with the publishing company for one and a half years, decided not to do that. And as you, knew, you know, I, I started with Nealai in my garage and ting, things really took off for me in the States. Um, fast forward about five, six years later, I found the plan and it's like four years ago, I found this plan for what I wanted to achieve. And that was like really emotional. I was sitting looking at the papers like, and I could remember how, where I was mentally. I mean, I was sitting in the garden, you know, sitting writing my biggest plans and what I wanted. I, I was detailed. I, I was writing like what I wanted to do in my love life, business life, which cars I wanted to have, where I wanted to live and all that stuff. And crazy enough, you know, I, I had actually my plans, except having a baby and being married to this girl, which I thought I was going to be, everything else went far beyond, you know, I had way cooler cars, um, spent way more money, had way more fun. I traveled around the world and met, I mean, every celebrity that was at this time in Hollywood. So it was just like, blew my mind. And, and it just shows, you know, you write down your plan, you know, you, you might follow them or you might exceed, you know, you might go beyond them. And that's a really cool thing for, for a measurement for anyone, I think. Yeah, I, I love that. And uh, like, I'm a big believer in writing down your goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote about it in my book, but also like of all the guests I've had on, which is more than 150 mm-hmm. now, 
almost all of them write down their goals. Exactly. Yeah. So it must be something, right? For sure it is. You know, um, when you write down things, I really believe in that. When you write, write down things, you're also writing down for your subconsciousness. You know, you, yeah. you, you, you see them on paper and it kind of puts them into a shelf in your brain somewhere. And, and if you don't write them down, you know, you have so many thoughts. I mean, now with social media, Instagram, this and that, you know, we are on the social media all the time. I, you get so many so much information every day. Yeah. It's kind of confusing. And it me, is. I'm kind of have a speedy brain, you know, with a lot of thoughts throughout the day. So if I don't write it down, you know, you forget it. Uh, you, didn't, you don't really put your mind into it. So when you, when you take a pen and actually sit down and write down your goals, or write down your to-do list for every day, you know, um, that kind of, take space in your brain and, and you will follow them. Even you might, you might not even know it. Yeah. And so it's, it's a big thing. And I think reading and writing things down, uh, it's very underestimated. Yeah, I think so too. And, and I want to kind of touch on one thing because I know that uh, last time we spoke, you write your things down and then you don't stop until you're done. Your mm-hmm. desk is clean mm-hmm. and then you go home and people who follow you on social media knows that uh, like your <laughs> You're you're in your office probably more than anyone else, and For even sure. even maybe the the, yeah. the cleaning lady has left, and you're still there. For sure. uh, so, what is it that's going on in your mind that makes you do these things? Because the first thing is to write it down, and I think that's great. But we see a lot of people that write things down, but they don't take action, mm. or they do. 60% of what mm-hmm. they wrote down, mm-hmm. which is good, but to really excel like you have done in your life, maybe you need to do 105%, right? Exactly, yeah. So for me, you know, what really matters, and if you want to be successful at anything you do as an entrepreneur, or if you do sports like yourself, whatever you do, you know, you really have to have an extreme amount of discipline. And, um, you know, I like to have fun, I like to go out, I like to be with my friends, uh, you know, travel and all that kind of stuff, but I'm also very disciplined. So if I travel somewhere, you know, I can hang out, I can have fun uh, with my girlfriend all day long or whatever. When she goes to bed, I go back to work. You know, um, I work no matter where I am in the world. So that, and that gives me the lifestyle I can have. So I can travel as much as I do. I can be in Denmark if I want to for a month or something, but I travel, uh, I work at all times. So when I'm here in LA, you know, I, I wake up in the morning very early. I start working on my computer at, at home and answering e- emails. I come into the office and then I do my things and I have a plan I made the day before of things I need to do and I need to achieve. Yeah. And it's true. I don't go home until I've like pointed out everything because I just can't come to ease with it. And if I do, if I go home at eight, nine o'clock at night, I go home and then I open my computer at home and then I finish whatever I was supposed to do. Yeah. If you don't have the discipline, you know, what do you have? I just can't be happy with myself then. So how do you train discipline? Was this something that came natural to you or is it the vision that you want to create? Or like how, how do you train this for people that have uh, good question, not actually. done that? Yeah. Uh, I don't think you know, it came natural to me. I'm not from, uh, I haven't been like kind of trained by my, my parents in that sense. Uh, I wasn't like taught from my dad how to do business and this and that. It's just something I had in myself. It's like I have a burning desire, you know. I want to succeed. Um, I want to build this company. Um, I want a certain lifestyle. And to have that lifestyle, I need to work hard. Yeah. Um, you know, so, and that just shows anyone that, you know, everyone can do that. If I can do it, anyone can really. Yeah. I mean, I, had, I have a bachelor from Copenhagen Business School, so just a three-year education, you know, not, not really a master, MBA and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't believe you have that. Anyone with an with a insane passion and desire and discipline can, can beat any education, really, at the end of the day. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I think what's stopping a lot of people is fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
fear of other people's opinions, yeah. fear, fear of themselves, fear of failure, fear of losing money, or, or a lot of these of fears. So how, how do you deal with fear and how, how can you, we help people to yeah. deal with fear? I understand that because, you know, it, I mean, it, people write me that as well and ask for yeah. advice and stuff like that. And of course, everyone, if you're starting your first business, you have fear. I mean, yeah. of course you do. But at the end of the day, you know, you shouldn't have too much fear because there's not such a thing as failure. It is a stepping stone to your success. It's a stepping stone to, to become better. And a failure and a mistake is only a mistake if you don't learn from it. So looking back, you know, I started, thanks God, pretty early as an entrepreneur. I started when I was 26 years old. Okay. And um, I would say to anyone, just start as, as soon as you can. Start as early as you can in your life. Just get going, get started, learn from all your mistakes. Fine tune, go back, do it again, this and that. You can go bankrupt one, two, three, four, five times, just keep going because you will learn from every single uh, mistake you made yeah. and, then if, and then change them and become better and eventually you will succeed. Um, I understand that you know, people are afraid of losing money, they saved up, this and that, but you, know, you can start with having a job, work at McDonald's, whatever it takes, and then you can start your business in the evening. Yeah. You start writing down your plans, of course, you're starting to fine tune, then you go out, uh, what I did, um, I started to write it down, I started to learn to make the bracelets. Yeah. Uh, I was researching a lot. I, was, I, have a, I still have that map uh, in my folder, in my computer, so to speak, with 30 companies I saw as competitors. Yeah. And, and that inspired me to make the brand I wanted. So I was looking at all these different companies from around the world, jewelry companies. Uh, now I go, I, I actually did, uh, went back a year ago and looked at them. I think 50% of them have closed since. But that was, that, they were the coolest companies when I started. So I looked at them and then I kind of had an idea of who were my competitors in this field. What did I want to do and how could I be different? And then I just kind of, along the way, fine-tuned it. I, I didn't know where I would be, you know, today. I remember I was walking with my friend, you know, I started my garage in Hollywood Hills. Yeah. And I was walking with my friend and I said to him, you know, if I can just like sell 10 bracelets a day in like three or four years, then I can actually live and that's okay. Then I can pay the rent here. I can, you know, have the car I have and I pay the dog food and all that kind of shit, you know? And, and so that was just like small steps for me, so to speak. And, and then, you know, I said, and if I can do 20 bracelets, imagine that. Then, and, you know, kind of just really rolling with it and, and trying to measure and then make a scalable business. And of course, looking back now, the business is much bigger than, than I ever thought it would be. Yeah. And I've had so much fun. I have so many experiences and learned so much about myself and business in the U.S., of course, as well. So I would say to anyone, you know, don't be afraid to start. Just start small. Start like, you know, in your garage. Start in your room. Start in your parents' basement. Whatever it takes.